Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There are over 10,000 minutes in a seven-day week, and if you've ever found yourself saying, wow, that History of Byzantium show was great, but I need more than a half an hour of history a week, why don't you come on over to War and Conquest podcast, hosted by Neil Eckert, to get another half hour of history to hold you over until the next episode. We've got everything you could possibly want. Action, adventure, violence, murder, political intrigue, people who are subjectively crazy by modern standards. Just about anything you could ask for out of a historical podcast. We've got series on Alexander the Great, the First Crusade, the Crusader states, and the latter oftentimes had a complicated and conflict-riddled history with the emperors of Constantinople. So if you want the western side of the story, come on over to War and Conquest. We'll be happy to have you. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 180, Stumbling forward. Last time we waved goodbye to the direct line of Macedonian males as Constantine VIII's three-year reign came to an end. He was replaced by Romanus Ahiros, who was hastily married to Constantine's daughter Zoe in order to provide legitimacy for the succession. Let's introduce the new imperial couple before our story resumes. First, who were Constantine's daughters. The eldest was Eudocia, or Evthokia, who had given up on public life and entered a nunnery long before this time. Next was Zoe, who was now about 50 years old, and last was Theodora, who was at least a couple of years younger. These imperial princesses had long been kept out of the public eye and denied the chance to get married and have children. One of them, Zoe, we think, was engaged to the German emperor in her youth, but he died before the wedding could take place. Understandably, perhaps, in this frustrated confinement, Zoe and Theodora fell out and didn't trust one another. It's hard to get a true sense of their personalities, because their actions are so defined by the men controlling them, and indeed writing about them. What we're told is that Zoe was the better looking of the two, and had a fine, regal appearance, even in her fifties. Uh, but that Theodora was probably a bit smarter. Psellos, who is very secular in his outlook, mocks Zoe for being too religious, 
or superstitious, really. He claims that she had a statue of Jesus which she would talk to, asking it questions in order to make decisions. Zoe is also portrayed as a big spender, vindictive, and uninterested in government. All fairly typical male slurs on a princess, but no source strays from this line, so I'm afraid we have to tow it. Romanus Archiros is also mocked by Selos, but only once he becomes emperor. Before that, he was well thought of by all. Kind and genial, and his CV reads like the perfect Constantinopolitan grandee. He'd served as a judge in the courts for many years, then he'd been made curator of the Hagia Sophia before becoming prefect of the capital. He also looked and sounded the part. Now 60 years old, he had a distinguished appearance, spoke well. He could even read Latin. Part of the reason for this glowing resume is that Romanus was related to the imperial family. His great-grandmother was one of Romanus Le Capinos's daughters, as, of course, was Zoe's. This made them distant cousins, an issue which the patriarch had to excuse in order to marry them, the first of many compromises which the church made in order to keep the Macedonian show on the road. Romanus was 60, Zoe 50, neither had had any children, and yet, according to Psellos, they attempted to conceive one. It's hard to know what to do with this idea. It makes both out to be delusional and ignorant, and it so happens that this is the picture that Psellos wants to paint. He presents Romanus as a dilettante and Zoe as a fool, and so the idea that they were consulting doctors and magicians trying to improve their fertility fits this image nicely. Whether or not Romanus really wanted to father a son at 60, he made no concerted effort to line up a successor, which at his age should have been a priority. He was constrained, though, by the fact that his legitimacy rested on Zoe's lineage. He couldn't really make dynastic decisions without her approval, and having waited so long to exercise her own will, she was hardly likely to make choosing an heir her first order of business. Romanus was left in a tricky position. Though he was generally liked, he had no military experience at all, and there were many high-ranking men now eyeing the throne who realised that they too were but a marriage ceremony away from the throne. Romanus had little choice but to try and secure his own position and create some independent legitimacy. His first move was obvious. He handed out cash and prizes as quickly as he could. He increased the income of the Hagia Sophia, he emptied the prisons, and he forgave debts. He gave honours to some of the victims of Constantine's purges, and he sent money to ransom captives taken by the Pechenegs. Most significantly of all, perhaps, he reversed Basil's tax legislation. You may remember that villages were responsible for a certain amount of tax, and if one farm had been abandoned, the village as a whole was still required to pay the tax on it. 
Basil had decided that this was an unfair burden for ordinary families, and decreed that the nearest state official, magnate or churchman, should make up the difference. Seemingly a very fair and just decision. The church, who were most often the responsible party, lobbied heavily to get rid of this exaction. So Romanus won many friends amongst the clergy for this move. It's difficult to know the specific effects of any one decision, but this certainly made it easier for the rich to get richer. As I mentioned last episode, we are in for a glut of new emperors over this coming century of narrative, and it was expected that any new Vasilevs would hand out cash and prizes upon securing office. And this will become a problem for the state finances as time goes on. We get a hint of it here, because after two new emperors in swift succession, too many bishops had been elevated to the high rank of Sinkelos. At the next celebration of Pentecost, several prelates came to blows over the seating arrangements. In those first couple of years, several plots came to light which Romanus had to deal with. One involved Zoe's sister, Theodora, who was said to be conspiring with the son of the last Tsar of Bulgaria, Pressian. Theodora was put under house arrest in a convent, and Pressian went to a monastery, after losing his eyes. Then the Dukes of Thessalonica, Constantine Theogenes, was imprisoned, and a group of other officers were exiled. Romanus could see that he needed to lead the army in person to gain their trust and break up their whispering. A Roman defeat in Syria in 1029 provided the perfect pretext. Romanus packed his bags and headed for Antioch. As you may recall, Aleppo was currently run by the Myrdasid dynasty, who maintained an independent existence free of direct control by either the Byzantines or the Fatimids. The death of the emir in 1029 had prompted the Roman commander of Antioch to raid their territory, but he was beaten and driven off by the emir's sons, who now took control of the state. An independent Aleppo actually suited Constantinople just fine. The emirate was a bulwark against the Fatimids and presented no real threat to Antioch. Romanus, though, had his mind set on a grand campaign that would win him legitimacy and friends in the army. When he arrived in the east, though, he was advised by his generals not to campaign that summer, but he ignored them. Messengers from Aleppo also begged the emperor not to attack them. They offered to renew their old relationship as clients of the Romans, but to no avail. Romanus gathered a full imperial army and set off in late July. Yes, Romanus headed into the Syrian desert in July. The Byzantines made for the fort of Azaz, which was located next to a well-watered plain, which would make a great campsite. Predictably, the forces of Aleppo had arrived first and occupied the site. The army had to camp elsewhere, where they quickly began running out of water. Romanus sent out a battalion of the Tachmata to find better camping ground, but they were ambushed and dispersed. The army held a council, and the emperor reluctantly agreed to head back to Antioch. 
The next morning, seeing this, the Arabs pounced and attacked the camp. Chaos now reigned. As some units fled in disarray, a group of Armenian mercenaries began to steal their possessions, leading other Roman troops to confront them. In the confusion, the emperor was nearly abandoned, but eventually made it out safely. There are conflicting reports about the number of casualties. It seems this was more of a humiliation than an actual rout. Most of the soldiers made it back to Antioch safely, but the imperial baggage train fell into enemy hands. And this was a significant haul, because the emperor's tent on campaign was decked out in all its finery to help establish his authority. This disaster made it clear to everyone involved that Romanus had no idea what he was doing. But the strength of the Roman position meant that no real negative consequences fell on the empire. In fact, the counterattack began immediately. While Archiros and the rest huddled behind Antioch's walls, the victorious Arabs raced along the frontier, proclaiming their victory. 800 riders arrived at the border town of Teluk and told the Roman garrison to leave or be killed. The Byzantine commander, George Maniakis, remember the name, told them he would leave in the morning. To make it clear that he was surrendering, he sent a huge amount of food and wine out to the besiegers. They indulged themselves, and when they fell asleep that night, Maniakis led his men into their camp and slaughtered them. He sent 800 sets of ears and noses in a bag to Romanus, who immediately promoted him. Further mopping up operations made it clear that Aleppo wasn't going to benefit from this exchange. The sons of the emir bickered with one another over who would rule, and the Fatimids continued to put pressure on from the south. By 1031, through sheer geostrategic circumstance, as Antony Caldellis puts it, Aleppo volunteered to become a Roman protectorate again. Despite their comfortable victory, they did not want large imperial armies coming for them again, and they knew that friendship with Byzantium led to more freedom than the Fatimid yoke. Meanwhile, another local ruler fell out with the Fatimid Caliphate. This was the governor of Tripoli, who asked for Roman assistance to rid himself of the caliphate's garrisons in the area. Imperial troops were sent in and cleared out several trouble spots that had been threatening their control of the coast, and as you know, control of Syria was at this point being fought on a city-by-city -city basis between half a dozen states and factions. George Maniakis, he of the ears and noses, now made a play to capture the city of Edessa. Check the map if you need a reminder of its location. It lay south of the Roman position in the Taurus Mountains, not too far from the old jihadi centre of Samosata or the old imperial stronghold of Dara. The city was held by nominal Roman allies, the Marwanids, but its Turkish governor offered the keys of the city to the Byzantines in exchange for lands and a pension inside the empire. Part of why the governor wanted out was the conflict inside the city between Arabs and Kurds. So in late 1031, Maniakis slipped into the city and took possession of the citadel. 
Marwanid forces soon arrived and tried to oust Maniakis, but Byzantine reinforcements drove them off. Edessa was part of the same wealthy trade network that Aleppo benefited from, and Maniakis was able to send home an annual tribute of 50 pounds of gold. But ultimately, capturing another major city was not ideal. It tied down more Roman troops and potentially alienated the Marwanids, who had long been friendly to the empire. Not that this was a concern back home. Despite his foolish campaign, Romanus had stumbled into a string of successes. Christian relics from Edessa were conveyed to the capital, bathing his campaign in a victorious light. Maniakis, meanwhile, had quickly become the empire's new superstar general. A giant of a man with a voice like thunder, he was daring and fearless, inspiring his men by fighting in the front line. Romanus made a much better impression on the world stage when he stayed at home. He was able to marry his nieces to a couple of Caucasian princes to ease tensions on the border, and the wedding ceremonies went down well at the capital. He was also able to play up his orthodox credentials by cracking down on the Monophysites. Ah, just like old times. It was the Bishop of Melitene who decided to put pressure on the new emperor, sending letters decrying the heretics living in his see. So Romanus summoned the leadership of the Syrian Monophysites to Constantinople for re-education. The patriarch, Johannan VIII, died while at the capital, leading some scholars to see this as a major persecution. But we have little evidence of any other action taking place. In fact, the governor of Melitene warned the patriarch not to go, and across the next decade we know that the authorities continued to allow Monophysites to marry into Orthodox families, build new churches, and give evidence in imperial courts. On the ground, then, government officials knew that the unorthodox populations had to be tolerated for the empire to function. But zealous churchmen would always try to provoke a reaction against them. In a sense, they had to in order to maintain orthodoxy as the one true faith. Romanus also began building a new church complex at the capital to be his burial place. With the mausoleum at the Holy Apostles now full, he followed the example of Romanus Le Capinos by constructing a new church surrounded by monastic buildings which would honour his memory once he was gone. Pselos is extremely critical of Romanus for this. Again, Pselos's secular priorities mean he doesn't like imperial funds being diverted for church building, but he also argues that it was a vanity project intended to glorify the emperor's ego more than honour his celestial sponsor. Romanus was still not secure on the throne either. Another plot centred on Theodora, who was now tonsured and forced to formally become a nun. While her counterpart, Constantine Theoyenes, committed suicide rather than implicate anyone else in the conspiracy. The emperor was also becoming unpopular at the capital. In addition to his new church, he also decided to renovate the cisterns, aqueducts and hospitals, which had recently suffered earthquake damage. 
all perfectly sensible decisions in isolation, but together it meant that there was a crackdown on tax avoidance, which never goes down well. And as best we can tell, in order to raise significant funds, the emperor permitted tax farming to resume, meaning that officials would pay him the tax in advance and then go and fleece the provincials to make a profit. Taxation was always a difficult and at times nasty business, but this wasn't going to improve relations with the people. The expenses just continued to rack up. There was famine in Anatolia in 1032, caused by a plague of locusts, which the emperor duly sent funds to alleviate. A major attack on the Adriatic coast by the Sicilian Arabs had to be fought off, and several embassies were organised in attempts to secure a new peace deal with the Fatimids. Two new pieces of Caucasian territory were also secured for the empire. The town of Berkri near Lake Van, which required serious fighting to secure, and the peaceful surrender of the fortified town of Anacopia on the Black Sea coast. Garrisons have to be paid regularly, and so the bills kept coming. Romanus's downfall, though, had little to do with his checkered record as Vasilefs, and everything to do with Zoe. Or so we're told. The story goes that one of Basil II's most capable eunuchs, John the Orphanotrophos, was becoming influential in the palace. The Orphanotrophos was in charge of orphanages at the capital, but John's powers extended to much wider financial matters. John noted that Zoe and Romanus were growing ever further apart. It wouldn't surprise me if they'd never had a sexual relationship, but the sources claim that when it became clear that no child was going to issue from their liaisons, that Romanus lost interest and took a mistress. Zoe was upset by this, but far more angry when he took away her access to the treasury. Zoe was happy for Romanus to deal with the business of government, but she needed cash to play the part of empress. Offering or withholding favours was how she exercised power. But with imperial finances straining, Romanus put her on a strict allowance. With relations between the pair growing frosty, the eunuch John introduced the empress to his young, handsome and eligible brother, Michael. Michael was merely a money changer, but his charms worked on Zoe, and the two began a fairly indiscreet love affair. Romanus, for his part, wasn't too bothered. He was hardly shamed by this cuckolding, and he seems to have been happy that it was a man of low status rather than anyone who might present more of a threat to him. Little did he know. Early in 1034, Romanus began to feel ill. He lost weight and hair and grew pale. By Easter, he was a walking corpse, the imperial robes too heavy for his frail body. Finally, during Holy Week itself, he went to bathe, and men came in on the orders of Michael and Zoe and drowned him. Romanus was about 66 years old and had ruled the empire for five and a half years. Again, I was inclined to be sceptical of this story. For a man of his age to grow suddenly ill and then have a heart attack or stroke while in the bath seems perfectly believable. But our sources are unanimous that he was slowly poisoned by 
John the Orphanotrophos, or Zoe, or both, and then finished off by their henchmen when he was taking too long to die. What happened next does seem to point to an assassination. The Patriarch was summoned to the palace, in Romanus's name, but when he arrived obviously he found the Emperor dead. Zoe told him that he had been summoned to marry her to Michael, the unknown money-changer. We'll talk more about the amazing illegality of all this next time. A huge bribe was handed over, and the Archbishop swallowed his objections. Zoe and Michael were married, and he became Emperor Michael IV. This is where the timing of Romanus's death looks incredibly suspicious. As you know, Holy Week was when the great and the good gathered in the palace to accept their appointments and the bags of gold that came with them. This meant three things. One, the great and the good were on hand to acclaim the new imperial couple immediately. None of them had yet taken up their appointments in the provinces from where they might launch a rebellion. Two, they had just been paid and promoted, so it wasn't in their interests to make a fuss about this highly surprising turn of events. And three, Zoe had all the cash she needed on hand to dish out bribes and favours to smooth over any objections. Romanus III was not a bad emperor, but he wasn't a particularly good one either. He kept most of Basil and Constantine's eunuchs in place, both in the palace and in the army, so administratively little changed. But his reign did nothing to solve the structural problems Byzantium was facing. He actually made his successor's job that little bit harder by allowing the empire to expand, building his new church, and making tax collection less just. Given his sad end, though, it's hard not to feel sorry for him. Next time, we meet the Paphlagonians. Zoe had welcomed not just Michael, but a whole new family into the palace. A family with little experience of public life, no military credentials, and no name to speak of. Needless to say, this news will not go down well with everyone in the Empire. I'm sure lots of your other favourite podcasts are taking a break over the holidays, so why not fill the void by checking out War and Conquest by Neil Eckhart. For those of you interested in military matters, this could be the show for you. You can go back in time to when Alexander laid the foundations for Byzantium in the eastern Mediterranean, or skip ahead to the Crusades so you're ready for what's coming in our next century of narrative. Check out War and Conquest on Spreaker, or wherever you get your podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack 
for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 